Hello, how's it going? It's Farius here and I'm back with episode two of Beneath the Music this month in July. Um, Firstly, before we go further, a huge thank you to everybody who got in touch uh, about last month's episode with Estiva. A lot of people saying they really enjoyed getting to know him a little bit better and hearing this story and what a good idea this podcast was, which was lovely to read. Um, Some fantastic comments. So thank you so much if you got in touch uh, and enjoyed the show. We are back uh, for episode two, and my guest uh, on this month's show is Mark Knight. Um, If you're a dance music fan, there is no way you won't have heard this name over the last 25 years or so. Uh, And if you're into the more mainstream side of things, he's also written records with Calvin Harris and Black Eyed Peas. He's done a lot. I'm going to give him a big talk up um, during the interview at the beginning. Um, But I think you're really going to enjoy this, particularly if you're a DJ or producer and you're just starting out or maybe you've been in it a couple of years. I always say it's the people who go before you that you learn from the best. And boy, has he (laughs) trodden the path in dance music. This is a really interesting chat. We sat down in a studio in West London um, a week or so ago and we just talked. We just talked and talked and talked. And I tried to edit this podcast down to try and get it. Uh, to around 45 minutes which is what I aim for in every podcast but I just couldn't do it he's just got so many stories talking about uh, moments in Ibiza taking drugs the early 90s um, how he started his label Tool Room Records um, and then he also talks about his family and uh, some of the moments that have been more difficult for him later on in the in the interview and uh, I know it's a long one but stick with it uh, he's got he's got such an interesting story to tell and I'm really happy that he agreed to do uh, this month's episode so one last uh, thing before we get into it um, we actually filmed this podcast as well in the studio so if you want to watch the visual version of it head over to YouTube just search for Farius Music or Farius Beneath the Music and you'll find it there let's get into it then this month's guest on Beneath the Music is Mark Knight Welcome to Beneath the Music with me, Farius, episode two, uh, and my guest this week is Mark Knight. Uh, Born in 1973 in Kent, uh, Mark Knight has become a household name in the world of dance music, a DJ, producer, songwriter, label owner, there isn't much uh, he hasn't done in the world of dance music. Grammy nominated for his work on the Black Eyed Peas album, The End. He also co-wrote with Calvin Harris and Tiny Temper on their track, Drinking From The Bottle, But as an artist in his own right, he's produced an incredible amount of music over the years. In 2004, he set up his own label, Tool Room Records, with his brother and his dad in a shed in their garden, and it became a family-run business. The label has gone on to be one of the most successful independent labels in the world. And in 2018, they were the highest-selling label on Beatport, with Mark himself coming in as the second highest-selling artist that year, too. But family is still where it's at for Mark, balancing his time between flying all over the world for gigs whilst being a dad to his son. He once said, to be honest, I never really got house music initially. It was too straight for me, too white. Only through the education and vision of DJs like Paul Trouble, Bobby and Steve and Tony Humphreys did I start to make the connection from the swing beat craze at the time towards the soulful house sound that was coming through. And thus the love affair began. Mark? Welcome to Beneath the Music. Is that love affair still there? It still is. Wow, what an introduction. There's not left much for me to say now. I think <laughs> well, that's it. Well, that's well, thanks for having me. <laughs> Cheers, Alan. Cheers, mate. Um, so let's go, let's go straight, let's go right back to it. So yep. in the 70s, born in 73, happy yep. birthday, by the way. Thank so you very much. It was your 50th the other yes, day. Yes, it was, yeah, yeah. Um, back then, growing up in Kent, Maidstone, what was, what was life like for a young Mark Knight back then? 
Um, I get very normal, you know, very as any kid would be obsessed with football, obsessed with music, you know. Um, we're buying music, hunting music down, listening to it on the radio, and then trying to find it at the weekends. My, my weekends comprised of football training Saturday morning, then getting the bus into town after football training. Um, and Maidstone had about five record stores, maybe more if you include things like Boots, because Boots used to sell vinyl yeah. back in the day. Um, and I would spend all day, all afternoon, just going around record shops listening to music um, because I just had this kind of inherent passion for it, you know, listening to people like Tony Blackburn on the radio and GLR and things like that and listening oh, wow, to yeah, yeah. all this great soul music I was hearing and go, oh, I need to find this, I need to find that. Um, and obviously being out of London... I didn't have access to, to what pirate radio or, or, or call more specialist stuff. So my um, my access to music was limited. So it was about just trying to go and discover it in any way I could. And that happened from a very early age, since I was about 10. Um, music was never an option as a career. I never thought long-term it would ever be a thing that I did. It was just something I was passionate about. I, I was always hell-bent on being a professional footballer. That was always the goal. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I've, I've read off, I remember doing a lot of sorting up for this interview, and I, I read that your dad was a drummer. He was, yeah. Was that, was that a, a big influence on you, do you reckon? Not at all. In fact, he never, we never really talked music or he never was showed. He, was, he, was he playing around the house or were you going to no, see him never, play or never, like ne I've never seen him play. Oh, really? Never, ever, ever. No. So it wasn't like that the the groove or the rhythm was sort of like injected into your life from a young age. Not at all. No. In fact, I didn't find that out until quite later in life that he obviously told us. But um, no, I've never seen my dad play. He's never had a drum kit. So yeah. it wasn't a sort of thing that was kind of, pardon the pun, drummed into me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was just something that he did. He did in, in, in his... Um, his 20s, and they were fairly successful. They toured. They, I think they had the number two record with their band. So they, yeah. they were all right. They did well. And then it kind of wasn't sustainable in terms financially. The, the band sort of just split up. One, The lead singer, um, I think he went to work with, is it Bill Haley in the comments? Maybe something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so that kind of disbanded. He then started working for a booking agency at a club and he was booking acts. So... So in the music world, it's not like he was doing something totally different. Completely, no. His okay. first, I guess, foray into into, edge, uh, into employment was via the music industry. So, well, And what was your mum doing? Was she in music as well? No, not at all. No, not at all. She, no, she's not. I mean, she likes music, but she's, she's not passionate it, about it. it? No. So, so you were in the in the 80s, I guess, going to Maystone, buying, yep. buying your records. Remember yep. what the first record you bought? I do. The first record I ever bought was Break Machine by Break Machine on, on <laughs> 7-inch. Um, yeah, loved it. It was a great... I mean, it, I was obsessed with hip-hop as well um, and electro. i never forget um, this guy. He just moved to our area and he'd moved, he came, moved from London and he had a tape with all this electro stuff on it. Um, and it was the first time I heard Planet Rock and I was like, Oh my God! I'm listening to the future. What is this? Yeah. This is just—it just blew my mind. Yeah. Like, it, and I had to go on this mad journey of trying to find more and more of this music. And at the time, then the electro series were out by Street Sounds. Um, that was a great way. And how old were you at this point? It's a good question. I guess time really distorts things. I, I guess anywhere between ten and twelve, or yeah, ten. So early, very early. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I just I was I was mad about music. I was just. You know, I would, I would set up my tape recorder next to my mum and dad's alarm clock, 
So that would, it would be the only way I could record music on the radio. So I would just sit there <laughs> listening to the radio with the tape, really, tape player next to the alarm clock because that's the only ra- radio we had. Yeah. Um, so, and, and just when good records come that I liked, I'd record it and then try and go and find it. That was, that was my... And what, so then go into, into Then go into Maidstone, yeah. armed with my tape, no and say, have you got this record? And have to... And, and they say, oh, this is so-and-so. If I didn't get the name of it, I didn't have the chance to write it down, yeah, yeah. I would then take my tape into town and then play it to all the guys. And they all, they all got to know me. Know me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was the way of, of discovering music. And then, I guess, you, as you grow up in your teens, you get from playing the records at home and, and then to an age where you're actually able to go out. And you went to a, a party on a Monday night? Well, that was a... a re- yeah, you're right. That was a really big influence on me. Um there was a thing on a Monday night in Maidstone called um, Kent Hall, which was like a, a kid's disco, really, on every Monday night, organised by this guy called DJ Gary. And he could have just played anything. He could have played pop music, all the chart records. That would have been the easy win for him. But he didn't. Um, he played really cutting-edge music and videos as well. We had a projector and where we could get access to videos. He would then play videos and he would have people come down to PAs and all sorts. But it was all dare I say, underground music. It wasn't the obvious slant um, in his his approach. Um, But, for example, I'll never forget hearing um, Nitro Deluxe and Let's Get Brutal there. I was like, wow, what is this? And then that would also be part of the way of accessing music and finding out new music. So that had played a really big part on me and I think a lot of people that come out of Maidstone uh, that are now in the music industry, it's quite bizarre how a lot of the influential people went through that process of going to that night and, and the influence he had on us. So I was so, really, I was really about like the Fanciuli brothers and others, like they were all in that in that whole world. That's right, well. yeah. And people like Dean Wilson and Gary Deadman and all of really? these guys, all yeah, from yeah, that yeah. area that went like obviously Dean's Dead Mouse is manager now, Owen who's to run um tour with us. Oh, wow. Nick, myself. You know, it's it's quite mad. Yeah. All these people who've gone to do big things kind of pass through that process yeah. and they had that influence. So is uh, is DJ Gary still around? I don't know. I should try and track him down really. I guess <laughs> I owe him a lot really. I mean I, Sounds I, like I, it. I quote him a lot in interviews I do all the time. Yeah. Hopefully we'll hear one and try and find <laughs> me. Um so I mean at that point uh, well, I guess, it, was there any point during those days where you thought, this is what I want to do? No, never. So you were playing football? Just football, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't really go out as a kid. I wasn't one for, I never drunk. I never I was never one of these kids who went to parties or did really, I just wasn't. I was so obsessed with football and sport yeah. and keep, be, keeping fit and all that. That wasn't on my radar at all. I love music, but, you know, there was no, there was no connection in your head of well, house music, electronic music, and all that thing hadn't even been invented at this point. This was yeah. pre all of that, so DJing wasn't really a thing. It was just a dude in the middle of the room, at the end, the corner of the room, putting records on. Still to this day, I, I find it hard to understand why people are looking at me when I'm DJing. I was like, why are you looking at me for? <laughs> why, why, like, why? Yeah. You know, I'm putting records on. You should be just interacting with each other. That's the point of this. Yeah. It's not to stand there and idolise some dude, you know, and I think that's, it's become out of culture as well that I, there's always a cycle, you know, there's always a psychological link between yourself and the crowd, you know, and you have to kind of preempt things and show that you're enjoying it 
But it's got so out of control now. I, I go on Instagram and I see people singing along and dancing, getting on top of the thing, it's on top of the stage. It's like, it's not your record, dude. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Dance. It's got so ridiculous now. I still don't understand that as a notion. But why yeah. are you looking at me for? Like, it, when I went out, I was looking at girls. That was the point, <laughs> you know? And, and just interacting with people, people didn't know dancing together. That's what it was all about. It's not, yeah. you know, I guess it is a concert now, but I'm not playing anything. I'm just putting records on. So like DJ Gary and, and those DJs back then, they weren't doing any of that. Obviously, they were just the guys not. in the college introducing on you to new music. And we'd all be break dancing, so there'd be circles going and everyone would I'd jump I'd love in. to see a video of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you saw the way I walked into this room and how badly my knee is. I mean, a lot of that come from those heady break dancing days. So, yeah, um, that that's all well gone now. But, um, yeah, that was the purpose of going to to a dance room. And early raves as well, the same thing. It wasn't mm. about idolising the DJ. It was about connecting with people in an environment that you all collectively felt safe and enjoyed, you know, that you were in this room and you and you were just getting down together. You go back to the, the all the things pre that, the, the Paradise Garage and 54 and the Loft and all that. People didn't stand there and look at David Mancuso. Yeah. Or, or you know, they just didn't. I mean, for me, the gigs I played, I play one in Europe, which is just a dark, sweaty club, and no one looks at you particularly. There's no big production, and it, it is my favourite gig. Oh, yeah, don't get me wrong, I love the fist pumping. You know, I do enjoy course. it. But they are like, it's, you just feel like you can really do your own thing. And ultimately, we're introverts. You know, like most of the time when you're sat in a studio trying to make records, you don't want to be. I'm not thinking about the people in front of me and what I'm doing. It's my, making that sound. But anyway, mm. digressing. Um, so yep. you would, so you were doing. Uh, you were doing football, but you're also going out and finding your records. When you sort of made that connection between, okay, well, maybe this is, and I'm going to come on to your Ibiza yep. moment in just a minute. Sure. But when you made that connection, when you turn around to your football mates and you were like, I think I'm going to, I think I'm done here and I'm going to go there. Yeah. What, what, what was their reaction? I get, we'd all got kind of swallowed up really by, um, by the explosion of electronic music mm. and the drugs. Yeah. You know, let's, let's call it for what it is. You know, yeah. we all, just fell in love with this this new movement and the drugs. And, and what? Sorry, what? Put into context. What year was this? Do you reckon? Sort of late eighties. Uh, this what, was the early nineties. I was going to say around 91, 90, 91, 92. Because yeah. even though I'd went to a beef for the first time in eighty nine uh, and went and I did do ecstasy there and I was we ended up in um, amnesia and like what the fuck is this? Like I was 16 at the time. What, what, what took you out there? Were you just sort of we like, just oh, a lad's holiday. Just, we just picked up, randomly picked Ibiza and we went. And uh, it's funny, I saw my two mates I went with on Saturday night at my, at my fifth. I was going to ask who were your mates you went with. Are you, are you still in touch? Oh, yeah, we was, was with them on Saturday night and uh, with Tony and Wayne. And uh, we just randomly picked Ibiza and we ended up at Ecstasis, which is used to be in... Um, San Antonio, and we went to Amnesia, and we went to Asparadise. And I was 16, I, and I'd never been club. I'd never been to parties, because that wasn't my thing. I wasn't into drinking. I wasn't into <clears> any <throat> of that sort of stuff. It wasn't just on my radar. But I did then, and we just enjoyed being in the moment. And I was like, what the hell is this? This is nuts. Although then I came home and kind of parked that and carried on where I was. But you know, I, I guess the seed had been sown yeah. um, to a degree. And carried on playing football and doing what I was doing. And then, you know, the, the house music, electro music just exploded. Yeah. And we started to go along. I took my first pill and I was like, 
wow. But well, no, I've done it before and I've been, but at home, yeah. I was like, what the hell is this? This is nuts. <laughs> And then we would go out on Saturday night and then rock up to football Sunday morning, all manner of bits, oh, straight wow. from the you know, from the wow. night out. And you know, we were all playing some serious football, you know, paid yeah. football. Yeah. And um they'd be like, Have you been out? No. <laughs> and uh, Brandon, I, was, I mean my friends are still friends. I was literally on a phone call. My time just as I walked into the studio, um, and he's the best footballer I have ever played with. He was just brilliant. And I still feel guilty for him not going on and playing at the highest level because we kind of both got swallowed up in it and when we were going out all the time. And he should have gone on to do really big things, being a Premier League footballer without a shadow of a doubt. But um, electronic music or house music just swallowed us up and we just all fell in love with it. And, you know, things have moved on a bit more then. I started to buy more records. I bought a pair of my brother, had a pair of decks, pair of old belt driven decks. You know, the culture of DJing had started... Um, and I guess I never still wanted to do it. I was never into house music because I wanted to be a DJ. I wanted to be I just liked it. And just yeah. bought the music. Oh, so that still was there. Was, still was no connection no, there. Early night, no, you were going really. out, but there no, was no. Not really. And then, then my brother bought a pair of decks, and he had them in his room. And we were sitting at my mum and dad's. I guess I was twenty, twenty-one, and he learned how to mix. I was like, wow. Me and my brother, very, very competitive. It's like, well, if he can do it, I'm definitely going to have a go. So, yeah, no, I just would practice relentlessly every night. And I'd practice with um, two records. I only had two, two records that I knew worked together. Practiced over and over and over again, changed the pitches. You know, because it's, it's a very tactile thing when you're playing with vinyl. Yeah. So I, I would start at different tempos and get them, you know, that. What a certain tempo, then, then mix all the, the uh, pitches up and do it again. So I got it, and I just could do it. Um, and then I was buying more and more records. Then I thought, oh, do you know what? I, I want to play this. To do it. I was doing tapes and stuff. And then it kind of started. I was like, okay, I'm really, I could do this. I'm, and you, and you, this. this was like you were 21, 22. Yeah, something like that. Well, and what were you doing in the daytime? Like, what were you, were you I was working? working on a building site. Um, okay. I, I was, uh, in Maston? Uh, yeah, well, all over. Well, I always wanted to just, you know, I always thought I was going to be a bricklayer. That was always the, the plan. Um, that and football, you know, playing really? semi-pro and bricklaying. That, that was, like, that was, you know, that was where it was at. Was there ever a point of like, I want to do this so I can be a footballer? Like, I, did you did you think that might happen? I, I guess I knew I was never quite good enough. Um, I get yeah, it's bottom line, you know. And was I just just wasn't, and I wasn't great at going to trials and planning situations where I wasn't that comfortable. Yeah, um, I just wasn't. I guess, and that's a big component of moving yeah. up through the levels of football. You've got yeah. to really um, be able to go into those situations and just play and adapt to the people around you. Know, I've always felt. I enjoyed my football most when I played with people that I was familiar with and friendly with, and that limited, I think, my potential was, you know, on going up through the the, the standards. But um, I, I, I still love it. I still enjoyed it, and I guess yeah. in my heart of hearts, I knew that I, I just, you know, I was into too many things to and not focused enough on the thing. Um, to really kind of progress, but um, yeah, it was um, it was a case of them making tapes, giving them to people. Putting playing at little parties, putting little parties on okay. yourself, and the bugger began then. So early nineties, um, like uh, early twenties for you, I guess. Um, you were still loving hip hop and soul, yep. and you're going to Garage City. Garage City, yeah, was yeah. a big, huge influence on um, on my kind of musical yeah. path. Yeah, and I, I understand there was a, a DJ competition. There was indeed. So you, yeah. you're mixing at home. On your brother's decks, and then and then this competition came around. Yeah, I mean, we used to go quite religiously um, to Garage City because 
Initially, you, I went out and you did so many pills, you literally danced to anything. You know, the, the music was kind of irrespective. I remember one night going to, uh, we went to the Blue Orchid in Croydon and me and my mates, we'd go out all the time every weekend. We'd find, we always used to go out in my mate's van. He had a van and we put, um, in the back of it, a transit, we put a, uh, a part, a uh, bench on the benches you kind of find at pubs where you all sit around. You put that in the back. We'd all sit in the back playing cards, go around to all clubs all around the country on the way um, there, playing cards on the way back and absolutely battered on the way home. Um, and one night we went to the Blue Orchid in Croydon because we just thought, oh, let's go there. And the music was horrific. I mean, but we were so peeled up. We'd literally had the best night of our life. But that starts to wear off a little bit and you're like, do you know what? Actually, I'm really obsessed with music and I like this bit and I kind of gravitated to what I was an extension of where I was musically with hip-hop and soul. And Midnight well, was an enormous, was a golden era for R&B as well and I was still buying loads of that. So um, Soulful House was an extension of what I was already into so it felt very natural to kind of gravitate towards that. Um, and The Big Night in London was... Um, apart from ministry on Saturday night's ruling was Garage City. So we would kind of flip between going to the two, yeah. those two spots really. And then Paul, Trouble, Paul Troubles Night on a Wednesday night at the Loft in Camden. But yeah, City, yeah, I was going to say the Loft, the Loft sounds like that was a big influence for you as well. That was brilliant. That was like yeah. a Wednesday night. Uh, and that wasn't about anything but the music because it was Wednesday night. It would be packed every week and people would go just to dance, you know, yeah. to dance and hear great music. And Trouble was kind of, the UK's version of Larry Levan, really. I always hold him in that high esteem. Yeah. Um, he really was really a long way ahead of his time and pioneered a sound and stuck with a sound from, you know, God rest his soul to, to the day he died. Um, so Gary City ran this competition, Bobby and Steve, because before the club opened, they would have a little bit in Barumba, a little curtained off area, which was just the bar, and they would have someone DJing there. Um, each week, and they run a little competition over a, a, a series of weeks. Um, and you thought, I'll go for it. I'll go for it, yeah, why not? Yeah. And I ended up winning it, and and, and the, the prize was to open the club. The main the first, club, yeah. yeah. The main club, yeah. so I did that, and it went really well, and they said, oh, would you come back and play again? And I did, and I did it a few more times, and I was like, then I got really um, just in with the guys, Bobby and Steve, and I, a lot to them um, for really helping me get off the ground, really. Um and were you bringing your own records? You were still going out every weekend for oh, your yeah, records? Oh, yeah, very and, much final, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, God, now it'll be on, on a Friday night, finish work, bomb into the West End, into Soho. Oh, wow. Get a parking ticket and get as many <laughs> records as you possibly could afford. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that, that was the... That was the um, the Mecca, Darbley Street, where you had, obviously, Uptown, your Black yeah. Market, and you, I would just spend all my time, or release the groove, which was just off the back of... Um, um, Piccadilly Circus um, and I would just flip between the three yeah. and just yeah spend all my money on vinyl um, and then yeah go home and practice and and I guess that was that was my entry point in Gary City and that went well got to really know the Kiss guys who were who co-promoted the show with yeah because they, they had a relationship Kiss, yeah, one, yeah. Kiss 100 as it Kiss was 100, them, yeah, right? back in the day and they had right. a relationship with Gary City that's right I mean Kiss was so influential back then. This was pre the internet. This mm. was the, the only medium you had to know what was going on. That was your point of reference to find out what was happening anywhere. Um, so you'd listen. I was obsessed with Kiss. You listened all day, every day, and you know. Group, and you group. got it, Maidstone. Yeah, yeah. Good at Maidstone. Um, and I was working in town then, um, so I'd be in the van driving around, and I'd have it on all the time. Everyone did. That was everyone's point of reference. That was. Um, 
the medium that, that that got across all the information, what clubs night was, what club nights were going on, what was happening at the weekend, whether it be Pete Warman or Graham Gold telling you about it, or wow, Graham Gold, yeah, oh, yeah, wow. I, and I looked to Graham as well. I remember sending Graham a tape. He was doing Peach because Peach was one of the first nights yeah. we used to ever go to as well on a Friday night. Again, Mark Knight went to a trance night. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, it, it was a mixture of house and a bit of everything. I mean, Craig Demek, who's a good friend of mine now, would play a bit more house. Anything, it would, and then Graham was playing house. Right. But it was a bit of everything. It, yeah, was, yeah. it was less genre-specific then. Yeah. It would play everything. Um, and there were parts of the night that I was <coughs> less interested in because it wasn't musically aligned to what I was. And I'm not sure that worked. But again, when the drugs wore off a little bit, I was like, oh, maybe <laughs> this is not for me. But we were religious about going to Pete's every Friday night and we knew about all these things through yeah. Kiss. That was, a, again, one of then co-promoted nights. Uh, but I do remember seeing, sending Graham a tape because um, when they moved the club to the Leisure Lounge, they had a second room that played just more house and mm. garage and book. Um, book DJs more like that. And uh, so he, he, did, was, he did a mix at home did, or did a mix, so I sent to Graham and, he, and he, he, he phoned me up and said, yeah, would you come and play? Wow. So I got, you know, I connected with Kiss, I guess, by these two nights. Um, and Pat, who was a club promotions guy then at the time, was obviously seeing that I was playing on these events um, and was close with Bobby and Steve and said, look, we're thinking of starting our own night uh, on a Friday night at a club called Hanover Grand, called Independence. Would you be resident? I was like, yeah, I'd love to. Um, and that kind of suited me more because we, we started to get into the era of funky house. Because mm-hmm. as much as I love really soulful house, I did really like to the, the dubs. Yeah. Some of it was a bit noodly and disappeared up his own arse a wee bit. You know what I mean? And, and wasn't really built for that the context of clubs because it was so musical and it was so avant-garde in places. You know, we'd go off and have like a 16-bar bass solo, then a flute solo. This is lovely, but not in the context of a club. Sure. You know, and I was preferring the dubs and I was getting maybe a bit too dubby for Garage City because right. they really still like the kind of real soulful stuff. So this move to independence was perfect. It was at the right time for me and... um I played every single week, every Friday night, myself and JC, um, who worked at KISS for years and years and years um, as their in-house sound engineer. Um, and we'd become really good friends. And the night was a real success. And I got to play with everyone from Eric Murillo to to Dave Lee and Full Intention yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. and become friends with all those And guys. how old were you at this point? That's a very good question. <clears throat> I was probably 25, something like 25, okay. 26. And was this, I mean, was there was there a point at this stage where you were thinking, okay, I can sack off? Well, but, it was getting close to that because I... I mean, football, football's already... That's, yeah, that's that, gone. Yeah, that's gone now because... But you're still working a nine-to-five? Still working a nine-to-five, wow. yeah. Still have a job, yeah, very much so, yeah. Um, so even with all this going on, even doing, you know, talking to the KISP guys, you know, meeting all these incredible DJs and getting asked to do residencies, you're, you're still going still in, you're still up on a Monday still morning. A job, yeah, still have a job, or well, six days a week, yeah. Still have a job. Um, and I was in a really advantageous position when really. I was... Um, the construction issue had died. It was, it was, um, it was really on its arse. Um, and cable, which was obviously now satellites, was blowing up. So everyone was working in construction, got into doing cable because it was this, this you know, cable TV at home, you yeah, know, yeah. Sky and whatnot. So early nineties, early nineties. Yeah, yeah. So we'd all got into putting this in, and it was it was like the wild wild west. Um, <laughs> so we would go out with we would go out, we'd do as many installs as we could, we'd get a sheet of jobs, we'd go and do as many as we could, 
And then whatever, when we were done, we were done. Yeah. You know, we were kind of contractors. And that was going really well. And I, I, they asked me to do like a, an engineer's job, which was le- a bit less self well, it was full-time employed by a company called Cable & Wireless, who were um, the network provider. I didn't really have a fucking clue what I was doing. I really didn't. I didn't have a clue. I was just using it as an opportunity to to buy time in the studio. So, um, and my boss knew what I was up to. Like, I, I'd get a list of jobs to do. That I wouldn't do any of them. I'd just drive straight to Shoreditch, straight to the studio, and go to the studio. Whenever he'd call me, I'd run outside into the road. Go, where are you? Oh, I'm just working on so-and-so. And he'd like, okay. And he knew I wasn't doing anything. Yeah. Um, I guess I missed out a little bit of a chunk in the story there in terms of, how I got to that studio. I was going to say, so I, I, I believe that you made uh, friends with um, Joe Negro's engineer. Yes. Dave's engineer. Yeah, with Dave Lee. I got really pally with Dave. I really just clicked with Dave. Dave would play a lot on Friday nights. And I loved his sense of humour. He was so dry. He was so funny. Um, and we'd just become really good friends. And I would go with him to gigs all over the, the country just to have yeah. a laugh. And his wife, Deirdre, at the time, we would go together and almost be like his kind of tour manager a little bit. Right. And um, I was making records at the time, having a go with Danny, a friend of mine, Danny Broad. Um, and it was pretty poor, but I had loads of ideas. Well, I was going to say, did you have an idea of what you wanted to make? Because it sounds like, well, in the, in the 90s, there was so much going on. There were so many different uh, strands and genres of dance music. It was just really exploding did you have an, a set idea of right I want to make this record yeah I mean I guess my my biggest USP to this day still is, is my my age and my understanding of music and mm. you know, the, all the records that I'd bought so like the first thing I ever made was uh, sampling Roy Ayers Running Away so I was always going back to what I knew um, and then I did George Benson Love Times Love and just things that I'd known and grown up with that, that was I guess using my understanding of soul and bringing and I still do that to this day mm. that that formula has never changed mm. that's my point of reference you know um so we were having a go using the most I mean we had this horrible old sampler that, 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 that I think we had about two seconds sampling time on it so it was really difficult to make records but we made a couple and I'm playing to Dave I remember we cutting a slate of one of them and giving it to Dave it's like look the idea is really right but just the execution not there, is yeah. not there yeah. So um, he said, why don't you spend some time with Kevin, my engineer, and work with him? I was like, yeah, that'd be amazing. That must have been like incredible, a dream come true. Big time, yeah. And it was. He was brilliant, Kevin. He really knew his onions. And I learned a lot. And I would even go in with sessions with Dave and just just make the tea and just sit and watch. Um, Because I had this job that just allowed me to just do that. I didn't actually do the job. I just bunked off and went and sit in sessions, you know. And I was way above my head. I'd be sitting in sessions, we'd be recording brass sections and... And Dave would be going like, you know, what do you, th- what do you think was the better take? And I'm like, I haven't got a clue. Like, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? But he and must I, have seen something in you. He must have really believed in, I, in you to, to ask your advice. You yeah, know? and I just picked, I just absorbed it all. I just sat and listened and, and just took it all in. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I, you know, I, I, I'm not scared of kind of putting my neck out and doing things. And I, you know, I and just almost fake it till you make it. And yeah. I was like, all right, you I'll go with that take, Dave. I think that's a better one. And if you say it with enough conviction, people believe you. So, and then I got to understand what would be the better take and why. And, yeah. and you know, and I, I learned so much and I learned a lot at quite a high level. You know, we were making very, Dave was making very musical things and recording, you know, group BVs and harmonies and things like that. And like I say, recording strings or, or we go to sessions mm. or, 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 or brass. You know, we weren't just making 
really simple music. We were making very involved music. So I I kind of, it was a bit of a baptism of fire, really, because I was learning all that stuff at a real high level. And it's easy to kind of simplify that, and you know, mm-hmm. as a process than it is to kind of go the other way. So I, I owe a lot to him and Kevin, you know, because we were writing some pretty complex music. In fact, the first thing that we did together, really, or, or on a bigger level, was we recorded this jazz funk band. Um, and we wrote a record called This Is Why, and Dave signed it to Zeb Records. Um, so that was your that was your first record? One of them, yeah. I guess that was the first real... We'd done some other little bits on some smaller German labels, but um, okay. that was the first bigger production, and it kicked off. It did really well. And then I was getting offers to remix things, you know, and, I, and then I had a couple of other records out on big labels. Straight away, it started big, you know. I that's incredible because, I mean, that's that's not a story that's, you know, I, I've heard, we've heard about how how much work you put in and how you were cabling and then going out on the weekend and in, in reinvesting, I imagine, as well, all the money that you Absolutely. had, you were putting into all records. All the and... studio, yeah, all, all, all was, everything. And, you know, that's what... You have to remember in this industry, it's the music business. It's a business. Even though we're making music, it's still a business. And when did you work that out? I guess uh, my parents um, had always been successful in business. So I always understood the notion of what makes a successful business and mm. what's required, the amount of dedication and um, strategy um, and seriousness required to run a business So through them because... We didn't really see my parents growing up much because they had businesses and they would get home. My mum and dad would work together. They worked together and they would be at work all day together and then get home late and then just sit and talk about music, so about business. So right. me and my brother was exposed to that all the time. And we, you know, you'd listen over here as, as kids and um, how serious and passionate they were. And they did really well. They were very successful. So I understood. So it was always like hammered in. It was like yeah. But I, I guess they never really they never really translated it to us because. We were too young, but you, by osmosis, you just pick these things up and yeah. understand the principles in, in how they conducted themselves and why. And, and obviously we saw, as we moved to a bigger house, um, we got better cars, the success of hard work in your own business and what that what that reward brings, you know, you were seeing firsthand. So I understood the notion of, of what it required to run a business. And um, I, I guess I've always taken that on board from an early stage. So I knew that if I wanted to be successful, it was about reinvesting in myself. Mm. Um, and that notion's carried the way all the way through till now. I guess we'll get to talk about that later, how we applied <laughs> yeah, yeah. that to Tour Room. But um, yeah, every penny I have was spent on studio sessions yeah. um, with Kevin or hiring studios or, or, or getting people in, uh, yeah. keyboard players or bass players, whatever we needed to make music. Yeah. Um so yeah, it, it, it kind of to, it kind of went very quickly. I, I sort of started making these records and got a lot of people's attentions really quickly. Before you know, I was remixing Kylie and that's amazing. So so literally from your first couple of records, it picked up so much traction. It, it, it did, yeah, really really quickly. And I guess because I had um, the, the the Kiss residency, my name was all over the radio all day, every day in their adverts. So I was getting a lot of exposure. Mm. So. I become a hot this you know this yeah, yeah. the hottest new thing I guess around and um, that must yeah. have been quite a lot to deal with. Or did you take it in your stride? I just took it in my stride. Really. I was just like, well, let's just do it. But then it come to the point where I was like, well, this is now getting really serious, and um, mm. I'm going to get the sack from work soon anyway. Oh, so you were still you were still still working, yeah, hundred wow. percent. You know, it got to the point where we, my my wife Susan and I, we bought our we, we weren't married at the time, but we'd already bought one flat, bought our first flat in Crystal Palace. 
And we sold that. We did really well because we just got on board before the property boom. Right. And in the space of a year, we doubled our money. With the, the, oh. I think we bought our first flat, one version flat, for 49 grand in Crystal <laughs> Palace. Try buying one there now for 49 <laughs> grand. So, you know, we don't a lot of money from that. We bought a second house um, uh, just down the road in Annerley, um, in, in Crystal Palace, still in the area. And... Um, we loved it, but the area wasn't as great. And my wife had a desire to go back to university because she never really had the chance to go. I thought, well, I'm going to take the money, the equity we've got in the house um, and, and go full time because I was getting other gigs um, as well on Saturday night. Friday night would always be independence and I was mm -hmm. picking out other gigs Saturday. So I had two strands of income and it was mm -hmm. going well. I was like, wow, this is, you know, I'm, I'm in, a, in a good place here. How old were you at this point? I was probably about, 20, about 27, 28. Okay. So I wasn't young, per mm. se. Um, but this was quite clear now that this was going to be your career. Yeah, and I wanted to do it. You know, it felt appropriate at the time. I had enough traction. I had enough um, sort of, you know, I'd established myself enough in the scene to, to make that yeah. as, as an informed decision. You know, it wasn't just a passion decision. Now, you know, we, my wife, me and my wife sat down and was like, I, I really think I can make, I could do this. So she was kind of alongside you since day dot. So wow. she, you know, she's seen you know me go from no, you know do nothing, just being a bit of a hobby in, in the bedroom, putting records in my brother's bedroom on the old belt-driven decks to like growing into an artist. And um, we said, well, let's sell the house. And I think we made a hundred thousand pound. And I have she had fifty, I have fifty, and I invested all that money into uh, moving back to move back to my parents. And in the shed outside my house, where we'd had the decks initially, because my mum went mad, so we've got to take the decks out of the house, his driving's absolutely nuts. <laughs> so we put them in the in the tool shed, um, in the tool room. Um, and mm -hmm. I had a dream of like converting the tool room into a studio um, and then starting my own record label because I was releasing a lot, of, I was releasing records and I just felt I could do this better myself. I can do this better myself. And I, I always, thought if I own the process from the inception of the record to the, the, the delivery of the record, if it's not well executed, then I've only got myself. It's to, on you. I'm a, yeah, I'm, I'm accountable. Yeah. No one else. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I hear that from every, <clears throat> pretty much every independent record label owner I've spoken to, they say, I just thought I could do it better. And, yeah. I, wanted, and, I, and, I, knew, and I knew I could do it better and I wanted to have control. Yeah. And I think always own the process if you can. <clears throat> own it because then you're part of you're part of the whole thing. You're not leaving anything up for conjecture. You're not leaving anything up to be not handled the way you want to see it. And I, mean, it, it I mean, it sounds like you you owned it all the way through, to be honest. Kind of, yeah, because from a very early stage as well, Dave, you know, when I was working with, in Dave's studio, he I was in there so often, he was like, look, do you want to split the rent and we'll do this sticky. You, know, you have it for a couple of weeks, Kevin, because you're doing well with Kevin yeah. and I'll have it a couple of weeks. He, he was moving to Mill Hill. We wanted to set up our studio at home. Yeah. I was like, yeah, why not? Yeah. So I'd already inherited Dave's studio with all this gear in it yeah. and, and this incredible studio space in Shoreditch before before Shoreditch was trendy and we used to get broken into every every <laughs> other week. But that was a different story. That was a different time. Um, so you also, around the same time, did you become a resident at Ministry of Sound? I guess a little bit later, yeah. I mean, I'd started in two, well, we actually started touring in 2003. Um, so I'd used all that money to build a, build a studio myself um, outside my parents' house. Um, and, and you had I, enough coming in from the gigs? Yeah, just about. And I had this pot of money for oh, yeah, the yeah, sale of the yeah. house um, as a float to get it going. Um, 
And then all the stars kind of aligned. My brother was selling cars at the time. He was a car salesman. He just lost his job. My dad had retired. He'd sold his business. He'd retired. So we are all sitting around like, what should we do? And I said, look, I want to start a record label. I've got an idea. Um, this is my plan. This is what I think we can be. And we sat down um, and we wrote a plan of, of how we were going to execute it, what, we wanted, what it wanted to look like, what the roster of artists would look like. Um, and we stuck with it. And I built a team. And I knew it was important to build a team. I thought that was fundamental. You know, it's, and I think that's where a lot of people go wrong now. You know, it's, it's about understanding what you're strong at and building a team around that. Like, I had no, had no desire to go and fill out a form for a double taxation to form for Portugal whatsoever. My brother had no idea to sit and all, no, you know, had no desire to sit there and audition snares. Yeah. yeah. He didn't. <laughs> so, you know, we both knew that he could do the business side. I would do the creative and my dad yeah. would sit above us and kind of do give us direction. Give us the, and the experience of, of business. Yeah, yeah. And, and allow someone to work on the business while we worked in it. Yeah. Because I think that's it. that's inherently where a lot of businesses go wrong. We're so you're so busy working in it, getting things done at the coal face, you know. But then do you ever sort of objectively stand back and work on it, mm. create strategy, create vision for where you want? And and that's a big part. Otherwise, um, you know, where is success? Where 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 is your where are you going with with a business? So my dad being retired and obviously been in the music industry, so I had a basic understanding of it anyway and a passion for it. So, you know, which which really helped and knew how to run a business. So, as I say, all the stars really aligned. So we started started the label. Um, and, but it sounds like, it sounds, sorry to bite in, but it sounds like your family's always been a huge, important part of your life. Massively, yeah, yeah. And it, it sounds like without them and without the support that, that they have given you, it may not have happened. 100%. Yeah, look, I... I, I'm always the one driving it. Someone's got to drive the ideas. You've got mm. to build that momentum. You've got to go, look, I've got a brilliant idea. Sell it in. Come with me on this dream. I know where we can go. It's going to be really exciting. And we're going to make, you know, we're going to have a lot of fun, make a lot of memories and make some money. Mm. So you have to you have to inspire the people around you. You have to inspire and invigorate those people. But if it's your family and they believe in what you're doing, then, you you know, you've got the best team by your side. Yeah. Um, it's not easy. It's challenging working with your family. Me and my brother generally want to kill each other most of the time. Um, <laughs> Has that always been the case? Oh, um, less so before we work together. Because um, there, there must have been, you know, when you thought about the, the shed and the garden and I'll get dad and my brother on board, you must have had a thought of, is this going to work with them? Right? Do, really. do, do I have the relationship with them to make it work? Not really, because we... We'd work together on building building sites. He'd come and work for us before my brother and we used to put because he okay. was the younger brother. We'd be putting through hell. I mean, we were. I'm the youngest. So that's not fair. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's just how it is, unfortunately. But we'd never done anything together business wise. But um, yeah, it just all the stars had aligned. My brother was mad into uh, into house music as well. We had the same passion for it. Um, but he didn't have that kind of creative strand. He wasn't. That wasn't his thing, you know, but he'd worked in insurance, he'd worked in an office. So he, I go, so right, well, you do the business bit and I'll do yeah. the creative bit. And he was like, okay, I'll just do it, you know. And, and very early, I, I would task him with things like, right, let's start to put a database together. Let's take all the records I've got, right, you know, let's go through all the records we have and write down the names and addresses of all the record labels. So if we want to license anything, 
mm. we can send it. Uh, uh, yeah, but you didn't have any experience of working at a label. So no. how, how did you know? We this? just made it up. Oh. Just made it up as we went along. We had no clue. We had no yeah. handbook. We had it's not no even like you did. You made the tea at another label. You, no, you, you no. done DJing a bit of studio, making records, and I'd had interactions with labels, obviously yeah, yeah. through this. Yeah. But I didn't know how to run a record label. I had no idea. Wow. So we just made it up. We just we knew that it was important to have a sound, uh, which I I knew that I knew what was. I knew what it was, and I knew it was important to stick with that sound. Um, because that's that's fundamental to identity. Um, I knew what we wanted to look like in terms of our, our creative um, element. Uh, we were born in a really quite weird time, really. A lot of people, a lot of labels have started that around that time, around that time and, and a lot of people were like, why are you starting a label now? Because we were just at the demise of physical. Yeah. You know, demi- with distributors would be going bust left, right and centre. Like, Marta's gone down, Pinnacle's gone down. And you're like, so why are you starting a record label? So now? for those that don't understand, so that's basically CDs, vinyls, everything was just going down, and, and digital was yeah. was exploding. I mean, digital digital killed the music industry overnight. The, mm. the minute it went digital, it was good night Vienna, mm. because you know it's like pay sixteen ninety nine for a double pack import or get it for free. Yeah. I'll go for free, please. <laughs> so you know it killed. So, so what, but you must have thought, well, you must have had such determination and drive. Even though all the chips were, well, all the stars were, whatever, the chips were down or whatever, you thought, no, we can, we can do this. Yeah. Well, I'd committed everything to it. So there was no, there was no, yeah. there was no room for failure. We couldn't fail. But in some ways, because we weren't so entrenched in the legacy of physical product, it was easy to embrace digital and downloads moving mm. forward because it's like, well, that is the future. Mm. And let's get on board early and let's, let's be part of it and yeah. think in that way. You know, it wasn't like we were doing vinyl for 10 years and we built a biz- business model around that and it now collapsed because you'd gone from yeah. earning £8 profit per, per unit to, to nothing. Yeah. We'd never had that. Yeah. So we, we, we'd done we'd done some early vinyl, but not enough to make any money, so it didn't make any difference anyway. Um, so we were very quick to get on board with Beatport. We kind of launched at the same time as, as okay. they did. Yeah. Um, and we become very close to them. Uh, Jonas, um, who's the guy who started it, become a really good friend. We just because we we shared the same passions to to be successful. Um, and you saw where it, you saw you well, obviously both saw where it was going. Yeah, yeah. And, we, and we just embraced that as 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 the move. Yeah. Um, and we we've always been super close with Beatport. In fact, you know, still when they have ideas now, they'll come to us. We'll be to test ideas from, and when we have something that we want to do, we'll go and talk to them early on because I still really see that as as the as the way to to break records and and to authenticate records is through Beatport. Of course, Spotify now is by far the biggest yeah. um, source of revenue, but I, I still feel that you have to get that element right. You know, because that's in the DNA of what we are as a brand. So five years on, looking at um, I'm now at sort of 2011, um, and you sold out Brixton Academy. Yeah, and I was actually watching the after movie yesterday. Oh, right, there you go. And what kind of struck me was the sense of scale that you'd come from from that shed. Yeah. Um, but that said, it didn't. As first time I watched it yesterday, there's an actually really nice shot of you and your son who's yeah. you know it tiny. Just literally, it was about. Four months old at the yeah. time. Um, the, the sense of scale, but also, it didn't. It didn't look like the Mark Knight that I know. It the the CO two, the confetti, 
the cannons, and that's what we were talking about earlier. You yeah. Know? You said you you never wanted to be that guy on the stage, but there you. I mean, I watched it yesterday. There you were doing it. Why was that? Well, it was different because I I wanted it to be a live thing. So I'd got Carl Hyde to come and perform yeah. and skin and skin. So yeah. it was the first first time Carl ever performed ever performed outside of Underworld within that context. So I wanted it to be a live experience. We were doing Brixton, and, and around that time, this electronic house music events weren't done at hard ticket venues. They just weren't. Mm. That wasn't a thing. Yeah, I, I, looking at it, I don't think a dance brand or, or a music brand really had, had done that venue like that in that well, way. Well, the first that Swedish House Mafia did the week before us or two weeks before us, yeah. then we did it. Yeah. You know, that, that's where we were at at the time. So it was... It was everyone was moving out of the conventional club setup because clubs were feeling a little bit tired. People needed something new, but it was a bold move to, to move away from kind of walk up to a venue like Ministry, where people yeah. you knew you get X amount every week to go into a venue that was not synonymous for electronic music and putting an event on. And it's a but it's a far cry from Independence, Garrett City, that kind of vibe of a yeah. club. And now you're you're the guy on the stage with the decks and with the production. Yeah. Did you just realise you had to embrace that because that's where it was going? Or you actively thought, okay, it's kind of against what I want to do as a DJ or I feel like as a DJ, but but you went with it? But it was it was more of a live thing. I wanted it because I was you know, I was playing Bricks in Academy. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, the, I thought it needed to be more than me putting records on here. Yeah. yeah. It needs to be um more of a live experience. So we had, yeah, I had I, I had Carl, I had Skin, I had uh, Dino Lenny, and I had a couple of other people for life. I can't remember who now, but I wanted it to feel like a concert because we were at Brixton Academy. You know, well, I had other people come and play mm. uh, uh, and I just DJ, but I thought this is, I'm never going to get a chance again, maybe not in my lifetime, to, to expose and play the records that I've made in my repertoire yeah. in this situation. So I guess... I didn't feel as it felt more natural in that context doing that kind of thing than putting records on. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. really did. So because you know I had Carl, um, then we did Red Face Live as well. Yeah, and, uh, James yeah, yeah. come and did that. So and I'd never done any of these things. You know, and, and was there a feeling between you or, or your family or anybody that you thought, yeah, we've we've made it now? It was one of those moments. I, I, I'm never great at being retrospective in my career. Um, and that's a lot of time I feel it miss loads of things because I'm so hell bent on what's happening tomorrow. Mm. We've done that. We've done yesterday. I don't know about that. That's done. Let's get on with tomorrow. And are you, are you still like that? I'm still 100% like that. Right. I mean, I'm not one for sitting back on my laurels and going, we're like, we're 20 years this year as a label. And that's cool. But I think sometimes those anniversaries can be more to you than other people. <laughs> and you can get a little bit caught up. And I'm like, well, let's, let's worry about what we're doing for the next five years. We've done 20 years. Great, well done us. Right, yeah. let's get going. Yeah. You know? Um, so... Never time to sit back and put your feet up and think. No, never really. Oh, we've, we've done so well. No, let's worry about what we're going to do next. There's still so much we can do. And is that a feeling that's shared across you, your brother and, and your dad as well? Um, I, I guess I really drive... Unless I think, in all honesty, that's so my brother. My brother is very retrospective. He's He's... You know, if ever I forget anyone's name, like from school, uh, Stu, who is so and so? How do you remember all this stuff? Yeah. You know, but um, no, I'm always more concerned with tomorrow than I am yesterday. But it was one of those moments. I remember, you know, going, "Holy shit, we sold out Brixton Academy!" Yeah. Like, you know, seven eight years ago, we were just in the shed. Incredible. And we've come, you know, from the shed to the stars. Yeah. 
And it was really, yeah, it was one of those moments. It was real, one of those pinch yourself moments. Again, because it was, it was a very pioneering thing to do at the yeah. time. And I think we have been, you know, you know, forsaking our blushes here. We have been quite pioneering in what we've done. We've always tried to embrace new things, you know, and, and open the doors for a lot of people. Um, maybe sometimes we turn up a bit early, get it going, and then the people and other people cash in on our kind of pioneering efforts. But hey-ho, we've had a lot of fun yeah, yeah. on the journey. But um, yeah, that was a moment. It was a yeah. moment. So moving forward to sort of um, 2016 before they chuck us out of it. <laughs> yeah. 2016, um, you did your first album. Um, how did it take you so long? Hang on, 20... A year in the life. Oh, you and the life. Yes. Good point. I've forgotten about that. See, that's another thing I've forgotten about. <laughs> um, I guess this industry, and even to this day now, I, I think doing albums is a bit self-indulgent. There isn't mm-hmm. a real audience for artist albums, electronic music. And now there isn't even a shop for it. You know, DSPs aren't really set up to accommodate uh, albums in long form. In, in, in long form, they want singles. Like mm-hmm. I did an album... Um, in lockdown um, called Untold Business and when you're talking to Spotify and you're talking to Apple less so Apple um, be like what okay can you feature you know what, what tracks do you want for us to feature I'm like well they're all of them it's an album yeah but what pick out a couple of tracks no it's a whole album you know we need to feature the whole thing yeah. but they don't they can't accommodate that yeah. and you've only got a very short window of being in, in the front of the shop window not like physical sales where you could get a long period of time yeah. you know you go in, into HMV and your album could sit in the shop window for weeks um, if it was being successful now it's like there's such a big volume and it's more you know people create their own albums now through playlists they don't want they don't necessarily yeah. listen to albums in the way we did historically in the past where you put it on listen through the whole thing I'd come home from school and I'd listen to Off The Wall every night I'd come home my mum and dad had a record player I'd put it on put my headphones on sit on there it like a it was in like a ke- uh, chest thing and I could, you could lie underneath it I'd lie underneath it my headphones on listen to it all the way through get up turn it over lie down listen to it all the way back the other way oh. so you'd listen to the whole thing as a kind of a musical piece but you know things become so short form now people haven't it's got hard to that. change for yeah. Sure, yeah so you know albums aren't really considered as well as they used to be and not for electronic music very difficult people it's always been a very much a singles orientated market um but i thought i wanted to do something and the idea was um to do something for charity as well because all the money was given to, to, to war child so why did you choose that charity it just felt appropriate at the time it just felt the right thing to do so um you know, like get, a personal connection with them or anything? Um, or? I'd just seen what they'd been doing and I was just inspired by it and I thought okay. this is a lovely thing to do and, you know, these kids in Syria and all these places in the world have been affected by conflict. I thought I yeah. live such a, you know, fantastic life, you know, it would be wrong for me not to, to do something. So it just felt appropriate at the time mm. um, and we cut uh, and we uh, cut a little video of, of, of um, me on tour for the year just going around doing what yeah. I was doing and yeah, yeah it was just I just felt like the right thing to do at the time um, but uh, yeah it, it's not a sort of thing I, I would do a commercial success although we made you know enough money to, 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 to warrant giving you know it was it was a substantial amount of going to war child but it just financially now it, it is more of a self-indulgent thing you've got to be doing it for a reason like mm. that like either it's for charity or you just want to express yourself musically because yeah. Yeah, the, the the system isn't really set up to accommodate albums anymore. And so, cutting forward, as you mentioned, Untold Business, which is your second album, 
um, yeah. which you did in lockdown. Yeah. How did that? You not the label, not the business. How did the how did the pandemic and the lockdown affect you? I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to be honest. It was a, it was brilliant. But you uh, might. But was there any sort of like it must have been a scary moment, right? Um. I guess it was scary for all of us. Of course it was, because it was the unknown, wasn't it? Yeah. But I embraced the time off. I embraced the time with my family. It got me off the hamster wheel, you know? Mm. I mean, even then I was, because of my son, I only was doing two shows um, a month, uh, two weekends a month, because obviously I wanted to be at home for him. But it made me realise how important time is. Because you only get one go at this. You really only get one crack you know, and for all the money and all the success in the world, if you don't have the time to time to enjoy it, what's the point? Mm. What is the point? So it was a real eye-opener and it was um, it was a way to forcefully come off the hamster wheel and kind of reflect on your own situation and where you're going in life. Mm. So I really embraced it, you know, and I got fit. I used the time to, to really look after myself. I wrote an album, so, you know, as one door shut, another one opened. I really mm. saw it in that context. But, you know, unless we had something of that magnitude that, as I say, really disrupted the, the, the system and disrupted the way you acted, you wouldn't have, I wouldn't have come out of that. And our industry isn't in the healthiest environment at all. It really isn't. And sometimes you need to come away from it to objectively look back and go, look, if I go back doing this, I'm not going to do that, that and that anymore because that's just stupid. Yeah. You know, like inherently it's built on such a ridiculous model that is that the more successful you are, the more busy you are, the more obviously the better you must be. The more, so, you know, you're going to get more gigs. Gigs create gigs. But we don't have this downtime factored mm -hmm. into our schedule. Now, could you imagine going to a band and saying to them, right, let's... Got to all lined yeah, up. It's 20, uh, 25 years straight. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everyone will be dead. Everyone yeah. will be dead because of the environment we're in. And do you think pre-pandemic, you maybe didn't quite realise? Well, I knew you could see it, but how'd you get off? How'd you get off? How'd you get off the wheel? You know, it's, it's very it's very hard. Sometimes you need, a push is better than a shove, and you need something to go, right, stop, everyone stop, yeah. right? I mean, we've all gone back into it, and, 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 I, and I guess everyone has kind of gone back to where they were within reason. But now I just look at things and I'm like, well, does it make sense for me? You know, it doesn't make any sense to play in Bogota on Friday night and then play in Slovenia on Saturday night. That's not, that's yeah. not healthy. Were there any moments, I mean, looking back, were there any moments really, yes, you realise you're on that wheel, but you didn't know how to get off. Were there any moments where you thought, this is too much? Yeah. A lot. And, and, and I need and I need to walk either walk away for a period or for good. Um, yeah, I did. I mean, there's been moments when it is too much because I've always had a seven day a week job. You know, I've always Monday to Friday. Don't worry, I am Saturday night. I've been Sao Paulo Saturday night. I'll be in the office nine a.m. on Monday morning mm -hmm. without fail yeah. because I have to lead the team. You know, I have to lead by example or show. Don't tell. If you can show people that you can do that then if you've had a big night in Clapham on Saturday night, there's no reason you can't be in the office on Monday morning. None whatsoever. I'm not yeah. having it. Because I was in Sao Paulo. Yeah. I'm here and I'm the first one to put, put the kettle on. Yeah. So always show, don't tell. And I've always used that as a way to, to, to lead my team. And that's just built into the DNA of where we are now. And, and the people I've working for me are just incredible. Yeah. They just, like, if, it was three o'clock on, on the Tuesday night in the morning. I said, right, everyone, we need to get in the office. They would be there. That's a, yeah. 
they would be there. It sounds like the fa- the, the family uh, thread is going through you. Absolutely. The yeah, I've always, you know, that, that's, we have a, a saying, tour and family, and that's not just a kind of slogan yeah. that we just made up. It, it, it's part of our DNA. That's, yeah. It's always been the tour and family. And, yeah. and we build our business w- with that as an ethos. You know, I, I love the fact that, I work with people I love, you know. I could have made a lot more money working with more successful artists, but I don't do music for money. I do music because I love it. Yeah, I do because I love it, and I want to work with people that are nice people and good people, and we have, you know, and we're successful in what we do. I don't want to earn loads of money working with a twat. I'm not bothered. <laughs> I'm not bothered. Yeah, you know, if I wanted that kind of job, well, I was just I was driven by money or. You know, I do things for integrity. I do things I can look back and show my son, look, this is what I did. You know, I'd be proud of it. Not make silly billy records that made me load of money. I don't do it for money. But it sounds like because you're such a grafter and you're such a hard worker, you can't really do that in something that you don't have the passion for, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, you've got to know what you are, know what you stand for and be passionate about it and just do things from the heart. But marry that with a business principle and a lot of hard work and a lot of determination. And I think if you can get all of those facets on song, then I think you have a good mm. chance of being successful um, against balancing it with, 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 with time. You know, mm. if you can do all of that and it's not tricky and like you said there, sometimes I got, I got that wrong and it's too much and it is it's overpowering and overbearing. Like, I can't do this anymore. It's too much. Mm. But you get through it. You get, you know, you get through it and luckily I'm surrounded by my friends and my family, you know, that's, you know, as we've talked about, you know, my friends from when I was four, I still might have been trying to call me now, actually. While we're, <laughs> and that's my best mate, one of my best mates, Smithy, yeah. and I went to infant school with him at four. So I've always had... Um, that network around network, you. Yeah, that's that never allowed me to, to kind of become... Yeah. And have there ever been moments in your in your personal life where it's really pulled away from your career and there's, they've sort of been in conflict with each other? Look, yeah, I mean... I, in hindsight, if I'd gone back and do it again, if I could tell younger Mark Knight anything, I'd that is, say, well, before we do that, because that is literally my que- my question I ask everybody right. on this podcast is, what? And this is my last question to you, I guess. What would you tell that the the Mark? I'm trying to think which Mark, but the Mark that is sat listening to was it off the wall, was it? Yeah, in your parents' house with your headphones on. What would you tell that Mark if you I, if you got ten minutes with him? If I if if I if, I guess if I was a little bit old, a little bit older than me, if I was not 18, 19 year old Mark, yeah, just starting okay, yeah. work, you know, like I left school when I was 15. Um, when you're just a young man, I would say, look, do everything in life that reflects you as a person. You know, I think what happened was to become successful, I become such an, such an, um, so narrow as a person. Like I had to forego my mates' birthdays, weddings, I missed a lot. And in hindsight, I wish I would have done it in a more balanced way. I think balance is the key to success. It always is. Success isn't a metric of how much money you've got in your bank account or how many shows you're doing each month. That's not success. Success is doing all the things you love in life in the right amount. Um, And I got that wrong. And maybe I wouldn't have got to where I had if I hadn't had that amount of dedication. But would I have enjoyed life more? Yes, is the answer. I think that is the key is to do. Remember who you are. Remember Mark Knight, the footballer. I gave up football for 20 years. It's like, why am I not playing football? I love football. Mm. That was my whole, it was my whole life. But I'd stopped because I was just doing music and there was I, I hadn't had the capacity or headspace. Going back now, I would say, do all the things you love in life in the right amounts and then you will really win.
That's a pretty, seems like a good place to wrap up. Mark Knight, thank you so much for joining us on Beneath the Music. It's been, uh, Thanks, Adam. It's been really a big revelation. Thank Cheers, you. mate. Nice one. Thank you. So good to sit down with Mark Knight for this month's Beneath the Music. What a lovely guy. Um, I learned so much in that hour. Uh, a true legend of, of dance music and super kind of him to sit down with me. I hope you enjoyed that one as well. I'll be back for more Beneath the Music next month um, where I'll be sitting down with another name from the world of dance music. Um, should be a really good one, actually. As ever, if uh, you want to get in touch, if there's anything you're thinking or anything that's on your mind or if this has kind of resonated with you in some way or maybe something Mark said or I said that really connected with you, um, you can leave a comment um, on my Instagram or on the YouTube page um, for this episode or email me hello at various.co.uk I do check that inbox myself um, so it's always really nice to hear from anybody who um, feels like they want to say hello don't forget if you enjoyed this month's episode please like uh, on all the socials and on YouTube please share please subscribe please tell all your mates about it um, because it helps me a lot putting these these uh, episodes together Beneath the Music is a Farious and Enhanced Music collaboration I will see you next month <laughs>